0: everyone welcome to the latest episode of note to scene this week we got new music from the main Beartooth, a radio rundown and a deep dive on the rise and fall of boys like girls you can listen to the official note to scene radio show over at 94.3 the x in colorado every saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m local time if you want to check it out you're not in the area you can download the station's app just search 94.3 the x in the app store and tune in this saturday if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at scene at gmail.com. Alright, so before we get into the new music this week, we unfortunately have a sad story to discuss from the scene. Former Underoath guitarist Corey Steger died in a car accident last week. I wasn't super close at all with Corey, but in 2015, he and I talked on a few different occasions about Under Oath and the scene back in the day. He and I think this other guy reprinted a line of old Under Oath shirts with their original Death Metal logo on it, and I bought one. I can't remember exactly what all those logistics were, but I do remember he was super kind to me. Corey played on both of Under Oath's first two releases, Acts of Depression and Cries of the Past. Dallas Taylor, who was Undero's original vocalist and who later formed Maylene and the Son of Disaster, revealed the news in posts on his personal social media accounts. Dallas was involved in a near-fatal ATV accident in 2016. He was actually pronounced dead at the scene but was later revived and has been on an incredibly difficult uphill recovery battle ever since. But he spent a long time in the ICU immediately following the accident and Corey was there taking care of him. Now Under Oath we know today, and even back in the day, feels very separated from these guys, but if they don't start Under Oath in the late 90s, then we would have literally never had that band. And think about how many other bands would have never existed if Under Oath never happened. They were the first band that I fell completely in love with, and will probably be my favorite band of all time for the rest of my life. So rest in peace to Corey, and thank you for everything you contributed to the scene. It is way more than people realize. All right, so The Main have released the lead single, Sticky, from their upcoming eighth studio album, XOXO, from Love and Anxiety in Real Time, which is definitely a throwaway 1975 album title. But the song is good. The Main have evolved into the scene epitome of If It Ain't Broke, Don't Fix It. There's nothing intricate about the track, just a simple, straightforward, borderline pop number that feels like Third Eye Blind meets the 1975. It's a fun play on words in the hook about a significant other, and the song being as catchy as it is, all backed by a sunny-side-up riff that really boils down the foundations of what an earworm is. It's obvious the band is just continuing to do what they do best here. The Main is honestly one of my favorite scene stories, and I cannot wait to do their deep dive when the album comes out in July. People forget, but they're a former major label band. They bounced on the major label world and started their own label, and it took them two albums, but they finally found their footing in 2014 with American Candy and have been a post-scene success story ever since. I'm stoked on this song, stoked on the album, and still stoked on this band's future, which is really cool to say in 2021. All right, and other new music news. Beartooth have released a new standalone single called Devastation. I'm assuming an album announcement is on the horizon, but nothing as of yet with this track. So, I had multiple people hit me this past weekend raving about how much they liked this song. I don't get it. I was at ground zero for this band. I was a huge Attack Attack fan and a big fan of Caleb in general. Nobody remembers it now, but Beartooth was just supposed to be a fun side project for him after Attack Attack. He had an EDM project called Class that was going to be his main focus. He released three songs under the name, one of which called Take Me Away made it into a trailer for the Horizon 3 video game. Here it is, check out a clip of it. dropped I Have a Problem, played their first show, and then dropped the sick EP. There was a bunch of momentum behind it, and Caleb shelved class. But Beartooth has a pretty distinct sound. I've always kind of referred to it as rock radio hardcore. I remember seeing them in 2013 and 2014, and there would be kids in the crowd wearing everything from Bless the Fall shirts to Backtrack shirts. You never really saw that crossover with any other bands, not even the stick to your guns or the ghost insides of the scene. There was always some kind of hardcore versus scene kid gatekeeping going on in whichever direction. But there was something different about Beartooth, and then they dropped Disgusting, which between the first Paris and This Wild Life albums and Neck Deep's Life's Not Out to Get You was one of the biggest of 2014 for new bands. That was a pretty exciting summer looking back, and then everything just really fell apart. But after Disgusting, they dropped Aggressive and then Disease, which really just felt like different versions of Disgusting. And here we are in 2021, and Caleb wrote a slightly different song than 90% of everything he's ever written for Beartooth. And that's fine. Obviously, Beartooth fans are going to eat that up. But it's a different kind of If It Ain't Broke, Don't Fix It than The Main. The Main just wrote an undeniable pop song that absolutely sounds like The Main. Beartooth just wrote a pretty middle-of-the-road heavy rock song that sounds just like Beartooth. Listen, I genuinely hope I'm wrong and Red Bull pushes this to rock radio and it shoots up the chart, but to me, Devastation can't hold a candle to the lines or beaten in lips or body bag. We'll see though. Like I said, I genuinely hope the best for Caleb. I think he's been a great figure in the scene all the way through his career. And shout out to Red Bull Records for still kicking and being a thing. If you're in a band, they're honestly a great label to be on because they are literally only a label in order to look cool and do cool activations. They obviously make literal millions off of producing an energy drink, but they seriously just want to dump money into their bands because they can, and it looks cool to kids. At 2015 in the APMAs, we had all the artists and teams stay in the same hotel in downtown Cleveland, and Red Bull bought all the room keys in the entire hotel for those few days and put the disgusting artwork on them. It was a really cool flex because literally every band at the show that year had to use Beartooth's artwork to get into their rooms, and then they're like, why didn't our label do something like that. But we'll see with Beartooth this year. I'm hoping I'm wrong on this one. Alright, on to our radio rundown. Another week of bad news for our all-time low tracker update. Monsters has dropped to 23 on top 40 radio from its peak of 18, and it's down 26% in plays. On Alt Radio, it's actually holding steady at number three somehow, but overall we're down to number 60 on the Hot 100. Unless they defy all odds and spin the ship back around, it is safe to say the Monsters run is over. Still, this was all-time low's biggest moment of their career, and they've been around for over 15 years. That's a huge feat. I am very excited to see what they have in store next. MGK and Black Bear jumped from 10 to number 8 on top 40 radio, up nearly 5% in plays, and all signs are still pointing to a top 5 right now. Still number 2 on alternative radio as well, and it broke even on the Hot 100 at number 28. They just gotta keep that top 40 climb going, and the rest is gonna slowly take care of itself. Nothing Nowhere drops a spot at Alt Radio from 18 to 19, but still up 12% in plays, which is what's most important. It's in that weird limbo area where there are big spin gaps in between spots, so it takes a while to build up enough momentum to start jumping spots again. Same with Mod Sun and Avril. They're at 22, but still up nearly 19% in plays. And over at Rock Radio, Bring Me the Horizon is actually at number 7 with teardrops, up nearly 8% in plays, and Architects still at number 10, but up nearly 9% in plays. Spots 10 to 5 on Rock Radio are really close right now, all within 50 spins of each other, so if anyone slips, they're going to get gobbled up pretty quick. We'll see. It would be so, so cool to see Bring Me and Architects inside the top 5 at the same time in U.S. Rock Radio. We got a three-way scene battle going on in the teens right now, with The Day to Remember at number 15, Escape the Fate at number 16, and Black Veil Brides at number 18, all increasing in plays from last week, with ADTR's Everything We Need on the top of that race, up over 30%. We'll see if they can actually get some momentum behind a song for the first time in literal years. All right, on to our deep dive this week. So, Boys Like Girls one of the foundational neon bands that just exploded out of nowhere into mainstream success. On this dive, we're gonna unpack the rise and fall of one of the scene's most interesting bands that a lot of people forgot about. Okay, so from what I can gather, It seems like before Boys Like Girls, vocalist Martin Johnson was in a band called The Drive, which was called Fake ID before that, and the Fake ID iteration of the band actually has a song on the first Punk Goes Pop album, where they covered O-Town's All or Nothing. There is a surprising lack of information about this era online. Usually when a bigger band, even if they aren't big in current day, had members with past bands, they were documented somewhere else through fandoms during the MySpace era, whether that be through YouTube or blogs or what have you, but there isn't much about Fake ID or The Drive. So what I was able to put together was the original vocalist of Fake ID, the one on the Punko's pop cover, was Ben Potricus, who was the original vocalist of The Receiving End of Sirens. Ben left Fake ID to join Receiving, and then Martin was his replacement in Fake ID, who then changed their name to The Drive. I only found audio of one Drive song with Martin, called Autumn's Calling. Check it out. So after the drive, Martin wrote a batch of songs that he wanted to record and recruited what would end up being the original Boys Like Girls lineup. Bassist Brian Donahue, drummer John Keefe, and lead guitarist Paul DiGiovanni. And a super random fun fact, but it was only later after they joined the band together that Keefe and DiGiovanni learned that they were distant cousins. There were five songs that I know of that they recorded right after forming. Free, if you could see me now the only way that I know how to feel, I told you so, and kill me in a record shop. All of these demos later leaked in 2008 and fans actually compiled them into an EP and unofficially called it Heavy Heart. Check out Free. After the initial demos, they recorded a rough take of The Great Escape and a full acoustic version of Thunder, and put it on a pure volume page. Back then, labels were paying really close attention to the pure volume charts, so if you could get momentum, there was a chance you were going to get some label offers. The top unsigned artist chart was the one every band went after, and by the end of 2005, Boys Like Girls were at number one on it. They had gotten the attention of Matt Squire, who we most recently talked about on the Sayos and Deep Dive he produced In Search of Solid Ground. But they also got the attention of both booking agent Matt Gale and, of course, Columbia Records. Matt Gale has quite the resume. He launched Photo Finish Records in 2006. Co-founded the Bamboozle Festival and worked on the touring careers of everyone from My Chemical Romance to Bruno Mars. Dude's been around the block a few times and took boys like Girls under his wing when they were just getting started. So the band went on their first nationwide tour in 2006 with A Thorn For Every Heart, Hit The Lights, and Keating. Right after that run, they hit the studio with Squire to record what would be their now classic self-titled album. At the time, Squire was also actively familiar with Cute Is What We Aim For. He produced their first full-length, same old blood rush with a new touch, as well. This was really the building blocks of the neon wave that overtook Emo. Before this, the scene was full of dark clothes, heavy eyeliner, and black hair dye. By the time 2007 rolled around, the overcast skies of Emo gave way to the sun and rainbows of neon and scene Kids. Boys Like Girls and Cute Is What We Aim For were arguably the first neon bands. Sure, All Time Low was around before that, but they didn't really get caught up in the bright color wave until 2007 with So Wrong It's Right. But so right after Boys finished recording the album, Cute took them out on a tour, and then they did another run right after with Butch Walker, which might sound a little weird, and it does, but you gotta remember all the -the behind-the-scenes connections at work at this point with Boys Like Girls. They officially announced the self-titled album towards the end of July in 2006 and released it a month later on August 22nd. The lead single was Hero Heroin, which was on fairly consistent rotation on MTV2, VH1, and Fuse. Because it was their first album, the band was still very much underground in terms of overall popularity. Didn't do very much first week and ended up peaking at only number 55 on the top 200. But all of that changed once Columbia started rolling out the single campaign. The Great Escape followed Hero Heroin and it took off like a rocket ship. It dominated all of the music video TV stations, and in March of 2007, it was sent to Top 40 Radio. It ended up peaking at number eight on Top 40 and number 23 overall on the Hot 100. It is now certified platinum. After this, they pushed Hero Heroin again with a new mix, and it peaked at number 22 on Top 40 Radio and number 43 on the Hot 100. Later received a gold certification. Next was the emo ballad Thunder, which of course was the soundtracks to everyone's 2007 summer. It made it to number 21 on Top 40 Radio and number 76 on the Hot 100, and it also has a gold certification. After the album release, they went out on an unfortunate run with Lost profits that fall. In November and December, they toured with Spitafield, Punchline, Valencia, and Over It. This was right at the beginning of the cycle, so they weren't any huge venues. Medium range was probably around 500. In February and March of 2007 they supported Cartel in a U.S. run, and in the spring they supported Hello Goodbye on their North American headliner. They spent that summer on Warped, and really that was the summer Emo died for Warped Tour. It was bright colors everywhere, for the heavy bands and the pop punk bands. Think about the heavy sector of the scene at that point. The hype bands were Devil Wears Prada, they had just dropped Plagues, Bless the Fall had just dropped His Last Walk, Chiodos were entering the Bone Palace cycle. Then you have Boys Like Girls, Cute Is What We Aim For, Mayday Parade, All Time Low, We the Kings. A much different atmosphere in the scene than it was two years prior with Under Oath, Census Fail from first to last, and then pop punk bands like The Starting Line and Cartel. There was a huge shift in our world from 2006 to 2007. But so, Boys Like Girls spent the rest of the year after Warp touring with All Time Low, we the Kings, The Audition, and Valencia. It was that fall when they dropped the deluxe edition of their self-titled album, which had a ton of bonus content, including live footage and a classic enhanced CD photo gallery. We were really the only generation of kids to really get to experience that. Imagine buying a CD and being stoked that it had a photo gallery on it of the band when you put it in your computer. Now we have to buy fucking extra CD drives if we want to put a CD on our computers. 2008 was a huge year for Boys Like Girls and really kicked the single momentum from their bubbling hits and overdrive. From late winter to early summer, they opened for Avril Lavigne's Best Damn Thing World Tour huge, huge, huge look for them. Avril was one of the biggest artists in the world at that point, and she had just released the perfect superstar counterpart album to what Boys Like Girls had out, and they were playing arenas on it. After that, they spent the summer on a U.S. co-headliner with Good Charlotte, which had support from Metro Station in the main. I mean, it was just a neon onslaught at this point. And for them to co-headline with Charlotte. I mean, Good Charlotte wasn't near as big as they were at their peak at that point, but it was still before they dropped Cardiology, so they still had some pull. Then in the fall, they went out on a tour with Cute Is What We Aim For and Lights. This was the first tour Lights actually did after getting updrafted by Warner Brothers through Doghouse. I mean, all signs pointed to the scene having another wave at this point, or I guess continuing the mainstream attention it had from 2004 to 2006, but... I mean, we know what happened there. The momentum didn't necessarily slip from Boys Like Girls as quick as it did from other Neon bands though. After a UK tour with Metro Station in January of 2009, they began recording their next album in February. It was recorded in both Vancouver and New York with two separate production teams. You can tell that the band was searching for a smash hit. They had gotten a taste of that breakout mainstream success on the self-titled cycle, and they were ready to do whatever it took to get that song to number one. Brian Hose is officially credited as the album's producer. He has a pretty predominantly butt-rock resume, but hey, I mean, that shit was massive back in the day, and I'm honestly a sucker for 90% of it. He produced everything from Hinder's Extreme Behavior to multiple Skillet albums. So, in June, they officially announced the album would be titled Love Drunk and would come out on September 8th, 2009. The first single and title track dropped a week later. I loved this song and thought it was a great follow-up to the self-titled cycle but it was so obvious how calculated and compressed it was. They tried to make the math a little too right on pretty much this entire album, but I still really enjoy it, and honestly, I listen to it even more than self-titled nowadays. Most pop punk tends to sound like it's meant for underground clubs that are packed wall to wall, but the first half of this album sounds like a stadium pop punk album. Love Drunk made it to number 8 on Top 40 Radio and number 22 on the Hot 100, which at the time set a new record for the band's highest position on the chart. They dropped She's Got a Boyfriend Now as a single in August of 2008, and then the album dropped at the beginning of September through Capital. It sold 41,000 units first week and debuted at number 8 on the top 200. It's interesting now though because Big Machine is listed as a release credit on Spotify, which is basically the biggest country label in the world. From what I understand, Big Machine is still somehow independent, but it pretty much single-handedly has kept country in the mainstream conversation over the last decade and a half. Taylor Swift released her first six albums on Big Machine, and then there was a bunch of drama, but long story short, Big Machine is the country label. So they must have had a majority cut of Two Is Better Than One because Taylor is on it. I have no idea what the actual logistics are behind it, but I would really love to know because that credit is interesting. But now that we're here, Two Is Better Is One peaked at number seven on Top 40 Radio and set the all-time record for boys Like Girl's highest Hot 100 single at number 18. If you've been to a wedding in the last five years, you've probably noticed that it has quietly become the default slow dance for millennials who are tying the knot, which is just another way the scene just finds a way. But so the album is out. That fall, they went on a tour with Cobra Starship, Rocket to the Moon, The Main, and Versa Emerge. In March of 2010, they supported Headley on a Canadian tour alongside Stereos and Fifi Dobson. Big shout out to Fifi. A deluxe edition of Love Drunk was released on iTunes, which isn't on Spotify, had a couple acoustic tracks, and a Mark Hoppus remix of the title track, which is pure EDM, and to me is just unlistenable. I think it's terrible. In the spring of 2010, they co-headlined the Bamboozle Roadshow with All Time Low, Third Eye Blind, and LMFAO. You want to talk about an artifact of that time? Who wants an LMFAO deep dive? I mean, Hot Shell Ray, Far East Movement. Man, the 2010 Norma Corps had some bangers. But anyways, on paper, that Bamboozle run was really the last time things, at least on the outside, looked like all signs still pointed north for Boys Like Girls. That ended in June and the band basically took the rest of the summer off. At the very beginning of September that year, they posted a video on YouTube saying they were getting ready to head into the studio and get things prepared for their next album. But it was a long time before we ever heard anything official on that. Later, at the end of that month, the band's drummer, John Keefe, was arrested and charged with breaking and entering into a motor vehicle. So I was able to dig up a local Massachusetts report on the situation that said he was released without bail after pleading innocent and both his two lawyers and father declined to comment. Here's how the report described what happened. Officers Brian Thibault and Roy Bain were called around 11 a.m. to Keefe's condominium for a complaint about a loud van. Police were told Keefe opened the door of the van several times and turned the keys off to stop the carpet cleaning equipment, which was being powered by a compressor while the van idled. There are also allegations that Keefe and his neighbor bumped each other, but neither man was charged with assault. Keith allegedly told police he was up late the night before writing music and was trying to sleep when he heard the noise coming from outside his condominium. He also allegedly admitted to reaching inside the open window of the van and turning off the ignition. So, the band has never come clean and talked about what was going on internally around this time, but there were obviously some things not connecting the way they were in the years before. In December, Martin said they had finished writing the next record and that they were actually in the studio with Matt Squire. Again, to start demoing them out. But then we had radio silence again. And by the spring of 2011, there were rumors floating around that Boys Like Girls had broken up. A local Colorado radio station posted in May of 2011 that they had broken up and Martin would be doing solo stuff. But then John, who was the one who just got arrested the year before, tweeted, I have no idea what's going on right now. This is all news to me. I am sure someone just started a rumor. But the other members, nor the band as a whole, ever addressed that report. Then in June, Martin confirmed they were on hiatus and that they were all doing solo shit, which literally nobody listened to. I didn't even know half of these projects until I did research for the show. Early Morning Blues, The Rebels, Best of Friends. I mean, if you were a genuine fan of any of those bands, let me know because I don't know anyone who remembers a Boys Like Girls side project. But then, in November, Boys Like Girls' activity roared back to life. But it wasn't without its fair share of drama as well. According to bassist Brian Donahue, the band kicked him out. The band never commented on the situation there, but the rumor is that he was creating too much strife within the band, and he was too focused on his side projects. But in May of 2012, Boys Like Girls officially announced their third album, Crazy World, would come out that fall. Over the summer, they dropped a Crazy World EP in anticipation of the album, which had three songs, Beer Everything, Life of the Party, and The First Time. Martin ended up producing the album, and it dropped on December 11th through Columbia. It sold so little first week that it debuted at number 134 on the top 200 and wasn't documented in any press at the time. I mean, no scene kid wanted to listen to this album, but the real story is that it was a pop country album actually way ahead of its time. I can imagine a Thomas Rhett or a Luke Bryan on every song on this album. And honestly, there are just some straight-up country moments. The song Shoot is a summertime country banger, and it's hilarious to hear Martin sing some of the lyrics, talking about 9 to 5s, barbecues, mowing grass, and paying bills. I listen to a ton of country music, and I like to make scene parallels in terms of status, and there are a ton of country bands in and around Nashville that are basically equal vision-level sizes and they all sound like different variations of this song. Look up a band called The Roads Below, listen to Bonfire, and I Want Us, you'll know exactly what I mean. But listen, this album was destined to fail. It ain't terrible, I really do listen to it every once in a while when I just want some weightless music playing. But it was definitely the end of Boys Like Girls, and once it was out, everyone who was still hanging on saw the writing on the wall and bounced. They did a tour with the All-American Rejects in 2012 that should have been called the Fall from Grace Tour. I mean, the Rejects were so done at this point. And all of this goes back to what we talked about last week. The only thing harder than becoming a superstar is staying a superstar. 99% of every breakout artist falls at some point. Boys Like Girls had a taste, but they couldn't keep it together long enough. Martin has a new synth-pop band called The Night Game. The first album they dropped in 2018 was actually released through a mess of labels and imprints, but ended up back at Interscope and Capital. They just self-released their second album earlier this month. As for Boys Like Girls, you know they cashed that nostalgia check in 2016 and did a 10-year tour for the self-titled album. They were actually scheduled to do anniversary tours in Australia and Asia in 2020, but they were delayed due to the pandemic. I always find it so funny when bands extend their 10-year tours beyond the 10 years. I mean, shit, at this point, they can just come back to the US and do a 15 or 16-year tour for self-titled. It sure as hell be better than people suffering through fucking emo nights and hearing the great escape there. But that's it. Boys like girls just couldn't keep it together internally, and then they just didn't write the music they needed to. It was a wild ride that was really over in the blink of an eye. Instead, they're just gonna be forever an artifact of the scene. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at note2cene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note2Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Till next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.